Hello there everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night. This is the season six finale. Um, thank you for being patient with us while we were just off for a couple of weeks. Uh, we both had some stuff to attend to in our family lives and in different parts of the country, and it just meant that it was best for a break. We could have recorded last week, but we decided just to give ourselves some time off. Um, yeah, as I said, we are The Longest Night. We're a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed Network, and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name's Rob, and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter and you can find us on Etsy. You can find both of our pages on all uh, on both of those websites by searching for at Longest Night GOT. And if you find us on Etsy, maybe buy a little pin badge while you're there. It's up yeah. to you. Uh, our title music, as always, was provided by friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas, and you can find all of his available work in the description. Just before we get going, I just want to say as well that our next episode will be an interview uh, that I did a couple of days ago, and we'll be going out on Monday with Kieran, Kieran Belshaw. I spoke to him for about an hour. Um, he was the concept artist on Game of Thrones for seasons five to eight. Uh, okay. Let's get down to it. Let's blow this thing wide open. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we are going to be discussing Season 6, Episode 10 of Game of Thrones, the season finale, entitled The Winds of Winter. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by Miguel Sapochnik. It was first broadcast on the 26th of June, 2016, to an audience of 8.89 million people, uh, which made it the most viewed episode in the show's history up to that point. Lizzie, how do we feel about the, the big finale, season six, Winds of Winter? Um, yeah, I think it's a great episode. I was kind of taken aback when I was watching it at the, the sheer density of it and how much they they managed to cram into just over an hour. But I think as much as that should be lauded, I do feel like the writers have had to dig themselves out of a number of sort of deep plot trenches in order to wrap up some long-running story arcs. And... There was a part of me wondering if this jam-packed finale was always the intention. Like, time isn't on the side of the characters in the show, but nor is it on the side of the creators of the show at this point. Hmm. Um, what I will say it does very well is it's it's you know it explores the price of revenge. You know, revenge is a theme we always see coming up in Game of Thrones, yeah. and. We did see a little bit of it last week with Sansa, and it does continue into this week, you know, as Littlefinger, the man who handed her over to her abuser in the first place. He just sits in the backdrop of the action at Winterfell, and he just bides his time, and he puts on his best poker face, and he, you know, stands in the backdrop being unsuspecting, but you know there's something deeper going on there, like with Arya as well, the revenge on Wald Frey. Yeah. It's deserved, but it's excessively brutal. It's much like Sansa last week, or, you know, Arya and Merrin Tran, or Arya and the Waif. And, you know, Cersei's revenge on the Faith Millicent as well. It's, again, yeah. deserved, but it has much bigger consequences, both in King's Landing itself and on the distant shores surrounding it. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, that's a, a really good uh, early analysis. I think you can tell everyone that we are going to have rather a lot to say oh, uh, yes. about the Windsor winter. Um, me personally, um, this is the moment I've kind of been waiting for since we started uh, <laughs> the show. Um, this is my favourite episode. Nice. Um, I think it's in the conversation for being my favourite episode of just TV. Like, Fair enough. Um, yeah. I find um, the experience, even to this day, I find it to be very overwhelming um, and it does take me several hours to calm down after I've watched this episode. Um, Interesting. It's like just thinking about it and becoming emotional about it. Um, it's the sort of episode that makes me grateful for TV. Yeah, um, yeah. Makes me feel lucky that I was born at the right time to like fully appreciate Game of Thrones and that I was exactly the right age when it was airing. Like I wasn't born 10 years too early or too late to like fully have the experience with it that I did. Um, I think that's how I feel about the episode years later. The episode itself, um, I think if you're going to clear the board of everything except like the absolute essentials for the story, um, why wipe it clean when you can just blow it to pieces? Um, yeah, for sure. It, I think it combines everything that Game of Thrones used to be, everything that Game of Thrones currently is, at this point in the show and everything that it kind of goes on to be from this point. I always, uh, the th phrase I always come up with in my head when I try and think about this episode, if I could sum it up in like two or three words or something, is like, it's just maximum Game of Thrones. I just think <laughs> that it operates on, and I, I can understand why new viewers would find all of this a bit like you were being hit in the face with several wonderful things at exactly the same time and it all becomes a bit too intense and a bit too much. Um, but I think the experience is really, really magical. Um, it wasn't my favourite episode when it aired, when it first came out. It wasn't one of those where, like, I watched it and then in the immediate aftermath, I was sort of like, oh, best episode ever. Like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Because I yeah, think, yeah. and this is something we'll talk about as we go along, I do think this episode creaks in some places but over time it's found itself at number one and has never really moved because talking more about what Game of Thrones currently is at the end of season six and where it goes and how it's grown. Um, I think that this episode is the finest example of the show that Game of Thrones grew up to be and changed to be. Hmm. And when I think about the fact that it's my favorite show and the fact that discussing it online up until about season eight was always very fun and I felt like part of the community and that this episode aired on my birthday um, oh, yeah yeah my, my, my birthday is June 27th but mm. June 26th 9 p.m in the in the US is 2 a.m on the 27th in the UK and so I it, this ticked it so the episode aired on my birthday it was a great episode and over time the more and more I think about it the more I analyze it uh it's where you, you watch the the beginning of the show mm. and when you go back through the show a second or third or in my case like a seventh or eighth time you realize that this is the episode it's been building towards and, that, and that's not to say that they were always planning to get to this episode and that they were always planning for Cersei to do what she did or that they were always planning for Arya to do what she does or anything but when they got there, the story that these guys have cobbled together, this is a big full on like slashing off of like the unnecessary bits of the story and they've trimmed it right down. 
and it feels like this is the culmination of everything that we've been watching for about 60 episodes and that feeling is uh, quite it's, it's quite a lot to be honest <laughs> yeah i can imagine yeah river run belonged to house tully for a thousand years now it's mine what do you call that victory yes you're a great conqueror go on mock me boy you think i mind the tullys mock me for years the starks mock me where are they now you talk about wars if you're an expert, but the one battle I remember you fighting, you were captured by Rob Stark, the young wolf. It doesn't matter. Here we are now. Two Kingslayers. At the Twins, the Freys and the Lannisters celebrate their capture of Riverrun from the Tully army. After Jamie and Walder Frey have a pretty tense conversation about the future of the alliance between the two houses, the Lannister army departs for King's Landing. Their job's done. Uh, sometime later, Walder Frey is eating alone in the Great Hall at the Twins, and he wonders why his sons have yet to arrive to meet him for dinner. Uh, a serving girl then explains that they have already arrived, and it's revealed that she's killed them and baked them into a pie. And the serving girl then reveals herself to be da 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 Arya Stark in disguise. And before Walder Frey can escape, Arya slits his throat and brutally murders him. Um, what do we make of the, the stuff at the Twins? I think this is the episode's, weirdly, this is the moment of the episode that still kind of surprises me. <laughs> because it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> she was well out of the way and now she's well involved. Well, I mean, the first bit with Jamie Lannister, um, this might be the episode length or it might be my failing memory, but I completely forgot that this was in this episode. So thank you for reminding me. Um, <laughs> the second part with um, with the pie is so fucking upsetting. Yeah. I I mean I like I get it. I still hate it and it's it's good, don't get me wrong, but I yeah, it's it's horrible. Like you've made me feel bad for Walder Frey. <laughs> um and I think I sent you a message something like South Park already did it, but you know, Shakespeare yeah. already did it with Titus Andronicus. Yes. Um yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, it just sort of, like, we're going back to that theme of revenge, and it's like, when does that go too far? And how have Arya's experiences kind of made her into this person who it sort of veers into sadism, and, yeah. like, you're doing it for pleasure? And, yeah, um, I think it's it's kind of it's good to see her out of um, Bravos at least, but yeah, back in the game. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried for her because it's like you're still very young, and you. It's like this seems to be the norm now going forward. Yeah. It's not quite silent assassin so much as yeah, like sadism. Yeah, she's a sadistic robot child now. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, yeah. that's, that's who Aya is now. Um, the one thing that I do kind of notice on repeated watches of this episode um, is that this serving girl. Hmm. Uh, obviously, the idea is that when you watch the episode the first time, you're not really supposed to be looking at her because you know Jamie and Bron are having that funny joke about hmm. um, the fact that the women are staring at Jamie and not Bron. And there's a lot of activity. Uh, there's that conversation between Jamie and Walder Frey where Jamie sort of severs ties with a potentially useful ally just as Cersei's alienated about half the kingdoms. Lol. But mm. we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but you notice on a second or third watch that the serving girl, the camera sort of lingers on her 
more than you would have noticed the first time. She's taking long looks at Jamie Lannister from a distance, from close by. She comes to serve him, stares him right in the eyes, makes sure that he looks back at her because Aya knows exactly who he is. Mm. And there's all these... I don't know who the actress is that plays the serving girl, but something you kind of have to consider when you're watching this, which is that it's this actress playing this this serving girl but the, the it's Arya Stark design like so she has to think about Arya's mannerisms Maisie Williams's mannerisms the mannerisms of this girl this serving girl that she's playing mm, and yeah. all of these things get tied up in this very very short performance and it's a very impressive and short performance I'm gonna find I'm gonna do you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna find the the actress's name and I'm gonna mention it I'm gonna edit it I'm gonna edit it into this bit of the episode because <laughs> she deserves to have her name out there it's a very very good and very short one-time performance yeah I'm um, curious now in in Game of Thrones hi there everyone it's Rob speaking after we've recorded the episode and I just wanted to let you know that the actress's name was Sabrina Bartlett the the eye stuff with Walder Frey it's not as gruesome or as drawn out as the Merrin Trance stuff. I think it's just because they've got a bit less space in this episode and so they have to, you know, maybe apply a bit less time to it. But as you've said there, it's probably worse when you sit and think about it because with Merrin Trant, it was like, you know, he'd been she'd been building up to it and thinking about it for a very long time and he was, I mean, the episode before did a very good job of making him seem like a very horrible person and he was yeah, a pedophile yeah. that liked to beat up small girls and so you know mm-hmm. whatever yeah. you can sort of enjoy that bit of it and then you even start to feel sympathy for him because of the way that I uh, kills him in that episode but this one you sit there and it's like she's killed two guys off screen gone to the trouble yeah. of carving them up Yeah, she's ground them down somehow um, baked them into a pie ma- made this pie by the way, um, yeah. brilliant baking skills from Aya here, by the way. Yeah, maybe um, and then... Hot Pie was involved. She might have had a bit of help, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, call, call, call on a favour from an old friend <laughs> um, to, make this, uh, to make this pie. And then served it up to him and has taken great pleasure in revealing the plan to Walder Frey and then ending his life in a way where yeah. she holds him and enjoys it and... It's not that I feel sympathy for Walder Frey. It's that I feel, like you say, worry and upset for the kind of path that I is heading down. Yeah, because like this. Wh- what I think with this is that it's the complete opposite of you think of Syria Pharrell and Jack and Hagar. How yeah. you know Syria Pharrell was kind of the what was it the water dancing that kind of very elegant yes. sword fighting and Jack and Hagar he sort of. He like acted in the shadows. You think at the end of season two when all of these men are just dead, but there's no evidence of what's happened. There's no blood. It's just, yep, they're all dead now. It's pretty clean in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. But yeah, this is just fucking horrible. It's a, the opposite of that. You're going into, like we said last week, is this any better than what Ramsey Bolton does? I think it's... I think the audience are supposed to view it... I think we're supposed to be slightly more sympathetic because of the people that she's enacting the revenge on, if you know what I mean. I don't think you're supposed to view Arya as a, necessarily as a villain in this situation. Oh, no, or not, not a villain. Be... But no, like, no, but like, say, like, just yeah, slightly yeah, yeah. too far. Hmm. Yeah, just that 
you know, there's the thing where you're like, okay, yeah, I understand this, Arya. Like, I think if she just killed Walder Frey, I think there'd be a sense of, yeah, go on then. But it's the baking of the pie, the whole yeah. enjoyment of it, and the fact, the way that she just kind of stares at him. Mm-hmm. And this is also, uh, in terms of the music, this is also the culmination of the way that Arya's theme has developed. If you go all the way back to season one, episode three, when her proper theme is used for the first time, when she's training with um, Sirio Pharrell. Mm. And it's this kind of dancing 6-8 kind of... But underneath, there's just this little current where he, uh, Rami Javadi puts it in and it's this... And it's the... And now, when you get to the Walder Frey scene, that's now the dominant thread of her theme yeah. where it's this and it makes it all discordant and uncomfortable and it's this in you know this little this darkness that's always kind of been there in Aya because mm. of things that have happened to her and now it's really it's fully bloomed in a, a very 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 gruesome very gruesome way and I think yeah, yeah. when she did what she did in Bravos, there was an element of distance to it as well because she was away from the main story she was still learning but now it feels like she has learned and all she's really learned how to do is I feel like we're back to like season two and three are you where it's just revenge on the brain and mm, yeah yeah she's this like you say this little robot vengeance child yeah it's that kind of it's the danger of revenge as a driving force but yeah now she mm. now she knows how to disguise herself mm. yeah so she's it's kind of she's dangerous i never thought i'd say that about her but yeah she's dangerous confess it felt good beating me starving me frightening me humiliating me You didn't do it because you cared about my atonement. You did it because it felt good. I understand. I do things because they feel good. I drink because it feels good. I killed my husband because it felt good to be rid of him. In King's Landing, it is the morning of Cersei and Loris's trial. The High Sparrow, Marjorie Tyrell, and many other characters and people of the court gather in the Sept of Baylor to bear witness. Loris immediately pleads guilty and confesses to his crimes and is sworn into the faith. Elsewhere in the city, Kyburn lures Maester Pycelle to his chambers, where his little birds stab Pycelle very violently to death. And in the Red Keep, Tommen is prevented from leaving his quarters by the mountain. Marjorie, in the Sept of Baylor, slowly realises that Cersei has sprung a trap and attempts to leave the Sept, but it is already far too late. Uh, Brother Lancel, who had been sent to retrieve Cersei, but had become distracted by the presence of one of the little birds, uh, who then stabbed him in the back, happens across a huge wildfire cache that is beneath the city and is rigged to blow. Uh, and he's unable to stop the explosion, which destroys the Sept of Baylor kills Lancel, kills the High Sparrow, kills Marjorie Tyrell, and everybody else in the building, including Mace Tyrell, Kevin Lannister. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, you name it. Um, And then after witnessing the death of his wife, Tommen throws himself from the Red Keep to his death. Cersei then leaves Septa Unella to be tortured by the mountain and orders Tommen's ashes to be buried where the Sept once stood. 
And later, Cersei calls a ceremony in the throne room where it is revealed that she has just taken the Iron Throne for herself. And as the common people look on, Cersei is crowned Queen of the Seven Kingdoms as Jaime arrives back to the capital from the Riverlands. One thing I will say about this is that I wasn't sure how to structure this episode with regards to where to start, but I also wasn't sure where to start this episode with regards to whether I should include the crowning ceremony in the main bulk of the King's Landing section because I think that the montage almost at the end of John being named King in the North, Cersei being crowned Queen and Daenerys coming to Westeros, that feels like a very decisive moment with the show where it's like, these are the three main storylines we're going to be focusing on now. Yeah. And they all kind of play out at the same time and it's like a, a little epilogue to the episode like it feels like the finale of the 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 final moment of the episode itself is the reveal of um what happens at the tower of joy which we'll get to in brand's vision and everything else after that feels like an epilogue but i decided in order to have a separate section with the epilogue we'd need like a seventh section of the episode and i was like that's too much and we've already got enough to talk about so the cersei's uh, cersei's crowning is uh, in the main king's landing section of the episode yeah um I think as much as there are as much as I think you would struggle to define this episode by by one sequence I think if you were going to uh I think this sequence at the beginning in King's Landing is probably the one that you would define it by so take me through how you feel about the the first 15 20 minutes of the episode okay well let's go back to the very start I will just say we were talking about music a couple of minutes ago, and oh, yeah. I love the music they use in this opening. I hadn't, like, I hadn't really noticed before that they that kind of sparse piano music is used so rarely, if ever, in the show. Yeah, very. I think this is the first time they used it this prominently. And you know, it reminds you of like Nicholas Brittle's work for Succession, or even like Ludovico Einaudi's work in the This Is England series. And then, yes, yeah. it's like as soon as the knife is drawn, it shifts into this like Philip Glass, you know, the yeah, it's it's really clever stuff. And um, I th- I can't remember exactly when the penny dropped we were recording at the time so i'm sure it's on record and you will hear it in all its wonderful glory but (laughs) is that shot i think you know when lancel first gets stabbed and it cuts to that wide shot and you have the dimly lit barrels on either side and then i think there was just a moment where there was a line about the the wildfire under King's Landing in, was it the previous episode or was it the yeah, one before? Yeah, well spotted. Yeah, last week. Yeah, and I, I don't know why this line stuck out to me and it was just that, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, it's coming. And yeah, it's one of my favourite moments of the show that, you know, just those those moments where the penny kind of drops and you figure out exactly what they're doing and... They didn't signpost it to death like some other shows might have done where you can you can tell straight away what's going to be the conclusion of this. Yeah. Yeah, really well done. Uh, yeah, one thing I will say is that um, when we were doing episode six of the season and Bran was having all those visions, hmm. 
Um, Bran saw this happen, ah. and they hid it in the in the visions. Um, there's a shot of wildfire exploding underneath King's Landing, and it's the shots that they eventually use in the finale. Um, oh, I've got to go back and watch that now. It's very clever. Um, but yeah, okay. So this for me, um, it's not my favorite moment of the episode, but I think it might be my favorite like set piece slash sequence in the show. Um, it is immediately funereal. The atmosphere already is one that is shrouded by regret. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Mourning, and it's like this. Everybody has already gone too far. Like, mm. how, how has it come to this? Like, how do we get here? Um, the way that everybody's so... That, that, like, no one talks. The first person to talk in this episode is that servant guy who turns up uh, outside Tommen's quarters and says, the, the trial will be beginning shortly, Your Grace. And he's the first person to talk because all the people who are going to attend the trial are all just sort of very quietly going about that everyone's like this is the day that we've been waiting for but none of them know that they've already gone way too far and that the fact that it's reached this point is just already ridiculous um the rest of the sequence that plays out is phenomenal i think the way that every piece slots together oh the editing and the organization and the construction Mm, yeah is superb and i think you know they they the thing is as well benioff and weiss they've talked about this afterwards and they've said that when they were writing this scene the inspiration they used was a quote from alfred hitchcock where he said that like um suspense he says you know i I forget what it is drama is when two men are having a conversation across the table and suspense is when you find out that there's a bomb under the table and yeah so they used that and built out from there. And they had, you know, the wildfire was something that was, as Benioff and Weiss would say, and I'm sure they did say in the uh, YouTube videos they did after the episode, um, well, we had the wildfire on the board. <laughs> and we decided that we hadn't used that yet and we were going to bring it out and use it. And this was the best place to do it because that's kind of how they, you know, they, they look at the story as if it's a, a chessboard and yeah, this is a piece yeah. that they can use. And it's just this slow reveal of the plan and then the sudden reveal of all the danger that they're in when the the camera pans down behind the candles and you can see Lancel about 30 yards away who's like oh god (laughs) and it's this slow like oh wow this has been very 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 well constructed and put together um and then the explosion itself like i can't believe how big it is like i remember watching it for the first time and thinking whoa that's big oh my god they're cutting out again whoa that's big oh my god they've cut out again and again oh my god this is huge how are they doing this and it's just the way that every shot after the explosion Mm. when it hits um lancel lannister and blows him to smithereens every single shot from then on you have marjorie and the high sparrow looking at each other and then how the high sparrow gets burnt into cinders Mm. And then you have that shot that looks at him and then it zooms out to show the whole set of Baylor from the inside. Yep. Then it zooms out again to show the set of Baylor from the outside. Then mm-hmm. it zooms out again to show the whole building and the surrounding area. Then it zooms out again 
to, to, to you watch the bell fly and knock that person to bits and then it zooms out like a, it's like the cut it does like a smash outward zoom reverse zoom to Cersei watching the whole city that's my one, the, that's my one nitpick about this yeah. actually um, you know Cersei looking on at the explosion with like a grin on her face it's not quite the reaction you'd expect from someone being so close to an explosion of that size like when you mm. see footage of explosions that big in real life, you expect like a shockwave to follow, resulting in, you know, the blast being felt from miles around. I don't know if you remember the um, the Beirut explosion yeah, yeah. years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know what they what they would have accomplished by having Cersei, I don't know, on the floor covered in wine, but you know, um, just a minor thing. But yeah, overall, I agree. Like, fuck yeah, it's like. Yeah, so it's so that those looks between the High Sparrow and Marjorie, and even before that, like Marjorie just frantically, I think the penny sort of drops for her as well, and it's like shit, yeah. we have to get out of here. It's like um, it's kind of like the Red Wedding, a little bit. Yeah, it works where, in exactly the same way. Yeah, where the Reigns of Castamere start playing, and it is just that sense of oh fuck, like Catelyn sort of looking around, and it's I think. In her mind, it's already too late, but, you know, it's worth a try. You know, you either yeah. you win or you die in this universe, I guess. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, fucking hell. Yeah, I think some people do say about Marjorie, they joke sometimes where, like, she's the only person who can actually hear the music, mm, um, yeah. which is also Catelyn Stark. It's like she's the only person at the Red Wedding who hears the Reigns of Castamere and thinks, wait a minute. And... That's for me what defines Game of Thrones' best sequence, uh, best sequences, and best shocks. Inverted commas yeah. is not the shock; it's the slow pull towards the inevitable. Yeah, it's yeah. not the like. Imagine if the Red Wedding had happened without Catelyn Stark realizing what was going on first. Mm, yeah. Like I'm sure it would have yeah. been shocking, but the shock is the shock compounds the dread. And in this sequence, it's the same thing where we're Marjorie and we're Lancel Lannister. Those are the two people whose eyes we see it through. Yeah. And at first we're Lancel and we go, oh shit. And then when we find out what's about to happen, it suddenly switches to Marjorie. And then all of the veneer that Marjorie had impressively developed while she was with the High Sparrow drops and she's like, forget about the bloody gods and listen to what I'm telling you. And Marjorie's like, I understand Cersei better than anyone in this room. We need to get out of here. And it's that, then it then it becomes a race against time mm. and it becomes a ticking time bomb and it becomes less about, oh my God, what's the plan that Cersei's put together? It's more, this is the plan that Cersei's put together and now we need to get Marjorie out. And I remember watching this reaction YouTube channel at the time. Um, I forget who it was. And there were four or five of them sat around a table or on a sofa or something. And three of them or four of them were like, yeah, when the explosion happened, like, whoa, that's amazing. And I just remember that one of the women sat on the edge of the sofa going, Marjorie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause it's, it, I think it, it does do that. Where like in that moment, as much as it's a thrill to wipe the board of characters like Pycelle, Mace Tyrell, the High Sparrow, like, you know, th this mass act of, well, it's, it, it is an act of terrorism. Um, yes. 
to sort of get a thrill from it and to be entertained by it. And then just in that moment, it's like, oh, Marjorie, <laughs> not you as well. Like, I suppose the price you pay for a spectacle the size of this is that, like The Red Wedding, like Hard Home, I suppose, you have to lose a character that you really love. Yeah, of and course, yeah. Yeah, so that's a shame. Um, yeah. Marjorie, it, Marjorie it, was really good at playing the game, but then Cersei just set fire to the whole board. So what are you going to do? <laughs> It's true, and the fa- I mean, the more frustrating thing is that, you know, she would have escaped that fate if not for the stupidity of the Faith Militant, and particularly the High Sparrow. Like, yes, hoisted by his right. own petard. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, farewell Marjorie, but... I love that every character in, every secondary character in King's Landing gets their own send-off without it feeling contrived, because uh, each of them gets their own moment to, like, sort of say goodbye to the audience, but it doesn't feel like it's been... I mean, obviously, it has been deliberately organised and engineered to feel that to, to be that way, but it feels very organic, like Cersei's just pulling them all into her orbit before she explodes. Yeah. Um, the line, though, that really, really gets me um, is the bit where Kyburn says to Maester Pycelle, before we can usher in the new, the old must be put to rest. And yeah. I feel like that line has a clear metatextual definition as well which is absolutely this is the writer sort of going the end of the story is probably not you know like you know you think if you think season six stamped our own vision on the story then you just wait for what's coming and in the end we have to put all of these characters out because they have no place in the story anymore yeah, if you and, if, if you yeah. fans think we're giving you King Pythel, then you've got another thing coming. <laughs> and what a gruesome death that is! Like Jesus, yeah, being stabbed to death by kids. Yeah, you see what I mean? It's like it should be something where you go, yeah, fucking finally. But it's like, oh god, that's a bit much. Yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then obviously when the explosion is over, we get um, Tommen. Yeah. Um, um, how do you feel yeah. about this now? Because when this scene actually happened, I don't think you quite knew how to react, and you sort of went, like, oh my God. <laughs> I did the second time as well. Yeah, okay. I've, I've got in my notes here, was it supposed to be portrayed as humorous? Because it just reminded me of Denim Raynham jumping out the window during a board meeting in the IT crowd. Yeah. But, I mean, I mean, also a little bit maybe of Varys at the end of season four. You know, when he considers going back to the chaos of King's Landing, but then he just sort of hesitates. He's like, no, you know what? I'll go with Tyrion. Fuck it. I'm not going back to this dumpster fire because, you know, I, I don't want to be the one picking up all the pieces. I wonder if that was a similar sort of thought process. Hmm. I think that, for me, uh, it, to be honest, I don't find the moment humorous at all. I find it quite... Um, I mean, at the time, I probably did because I think the image itself is a bit... It's not slapstick, but, like, just the way it happens all so silently and the way he just sort of flops out of the window. And Dean Charles Chapman, who plays Tommen, has said that, like, he fell out of that window about 40 times. (laughs) And that was the best one, yeah. And that was the best one, yes. Um, But I just... I just think it's so... I kind of think it's horrible because, like, it's the fact that he takes the crown off and that's basically the culmination of... Because Tommen's only really had a story in Game of Thrones since Joffrey died. Mm. 
and the culmination of his story and his is is in this moment and it feels like he was always kind of heading there which is that he was king before he was ready and then from the moment he was king two families tried to tear him to bits for their own ends yeah and in some way he blames himself because he's caused inadvertently by trying to do the right thing has caused the division between Cersei and Marjorie, between Cersei and the High Sparrow, between the High Sparrow and his mother, you know. And I think he looks at that and he blames himself and he realises what's happened and he realises what his mother has become. And so he takes the crown off because he's like, I'm I'm not worthy. And out he goes. And it's just this like... Oh. I mean, I don't understand people having very loud and over-the-top reactions to the moment he jumps out the window because whenever the camera stays in uh, stays in the spot. Mm. There are two versions in TV and film and, like, camera operation and stuff. There are two versions of the there and back again shot. And one of them is something that, like, say, M. Night Shyamalan would do where he would show a particular situation. He does it in his new movie, uh, Old, actually, yeah. um, where he'll show a situation and then pan the camera away from it and then use sound to imply that something has changed off camera. And then without cutting, he'll just move the camera back and show you how the situation has changed. And the inverse of that is that the camera stays exactly where it is. Somebody's mind, Tommen walks off camera, his mind is made up in that moment, and then he comes back to where the camera is and the consequences of how he felt when he was initially in the frame and how he felt when he left the frame are delivered when he returns to the frame. And... Mm. I don't understand the shock because as soon as that camera stays exactly where it is and you hear the crown get put on the table, it's like, well, of course. Of course he's going to do this. Like, what else is he going to do? Just, I don't know. Is it? Is this just a really odd edit? No, of course it's not. And fuck, yeah. it. It's a really amazing full stop, actually, on a, on a pretty... Um, on a just a, an amazing... I think this is the best thing to ever happen in King's Landing, actually, in terms of, like... I, th- I think this is the best King's Landing scene. I think Blackwater pushes it close. There's another one I'm thinking of that's pushing it close, but I think this one tips it all for yeah, this, I, this, I this maximum throw yeah. element. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's also, um, I guess if you go all the way back to the, you know, season one, episode one, where this all started was someone falling out of a window. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That is another parallel that this episode, uh, this episode brings up. But I, I mean... I guess we've also got to talk about like the morning. I mean, there's not there's not a lot to the the actual morning scene itself, but I think there's maybe something to be said for you know, like we were saying about in our season five review, like Cersei thinks she's more intelligent than she is, and she she sort of takes these actions without thinking of the consequences too much. I wonder if she thinks that Tommen's death is the end of it, as in. Yeah. That's that's the instant karma, but the fact is, there's like we mentioned, there's something much bigger on the horizon that she doesn't even know about just yet. She's got well, yeah. Well, this is something I did want to mention to you, and I will mention when we come to the end of this segment in King's Landing. I don't know if you have anything to say about the Scepter and Ella stuff. Just that, hey, it's a character who's been around. Um, Cersei delivers probably her most chilling line of the whole show so far, which is the um, today. You're not going to die today. You're going to die for this idea of dying for quite a while. 
is a horrid turn of phrase that <laughs> really freaks me out. And you the, get like the, the monster face reveal and everything. It's like this weird horror segment. The imp- uh, What they imply with that is a bit, uh, but I suppose it's better than explicitly showing it. So, okay. Yeah, I think it's just that the mountain is an evil robot and he's going to do as he pleases. And... The thing is, if he's going to kill you, he's going to do it quickly. Yeah, he's probably just going to rip your head off. Yeah, probably. Um, that's why I like to think that she was spared yeah, uh, yeah. months. I, I, I do, well, I hope it was a, a quick and painless rather than a, a drawn-out yeah. ordeal like Theon. That's one of the creakier moments of the episode for me. Um, Cersei doing the, the shame, shame, shame thing. Yeah. But the thing is with stuff like this and there are a couple more moments in the episode that are a bit like this which is that as game of thrones goes for bigger and bigger things and where it tries to make the big beats land harder the smaller beats aren't going to be as solid like you know the the big you know it's kind of like a spinning top i suppose where like you know the, the the bigger the, the you know the bigger the impact at the top of the spinning top the you know the, the little thing at the bottom which doesn't seem that important but kind of keeps the whole thing spinning it's going to be affected every now and again mm-hmm. and i can take little moments like shame 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 where like the writers are doing a self-referential thing and having a little bit of a giggle about it um i don't think it works tonally in that moment but i think that where we are with game of thrones now this idea of maximum thrones it's like the show is just different now and means that you get little things like this where it may start to behave more like a traditional tv show where characters will reference things that they've said in the past and so that's what i kind of chalk it up to um with regards to cersei's behavior in this episode though and what you were saying there about tommen feeling like maybe tommen is the consequence and so she doesn't really mourn him Mm. i think all the way back to the start of season five with the prophecy because this is the prophecy complete Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All three of her children are dead. Yeah. And so you take away Cersei's children and you take away what makes her human and grounded. And she, I mean, she's already committed an act of terrorism in this episode and now her children are dead. So, like, uh, you know, where does it go from here? I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, it's like you're the queen now, but you're in full survival mode. Yeah. Um, And she's going to need to be as well because. This, like you say, about um, the decision that Cersei has made in this episode mm. um, and about the consequences of it. Jamie's face says a thousand words, but I, wa- I did want to ask you a question about like the birth of this monster now that's been inside Cersei for a while. And now she's taken the crown. That whole thing is lit up like they're in hell. Mm. Nobody looks happy. Yeah. Um what kind of rain do you think this is going to be for Cersei? I think it's going to be a very chaotic one because it's it's like she's in full control, but I feel like she'll have, like I say, she's in survival mode. She'll be very isolated. So it'll yeah. be an arm, it's sort of arm's length. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. It might improve in the short term for King, for like, I don't know the lower levels of King's Landing because there's yeah. you know one big problem out of the way, but yeah, I don't think she'll be particularly well liked. And 
Mm. And obviously, you know, further parts of the map, you know, in this episode alone, it's already sort of solidifying that, yes, she has some very strong, powerful enemies. Yes. Yeah, that's the North and the Vale that don't like her. Yeah. Marine, uh, well, Daenerys' forces, Dawn, uh, the Tyrells. (laughs) It's not, not looking great. According to our records, Gion Mormont is Lord Commander. He died. We received no report from the Maester at Castle Black. Maester Aemon became quite ill shortly after the election. He's since passed away, which is why I'm here. This is irregular. Uh, Yes, well, I suppose that life is irregular. The Archmaester will discuss these irregularities with you. In the meantime, you are permitted to use the library. Follow me. In Old Town, Sam and Gilly arrive at the Citadel, where they see hundreds of white ravens being sent to various houses across Westeros to signal that winter has come. Sam persuades the bookkeeper at the Citadel to grant him a meeting with the Archmaester, and in the meantime, he's permitted to use the library. And upon entering the library, Sam becomes visibly and emotionally overwhelmed by its size. And I often like to think that Sam looking out on the library for the first time is very similar to how I feel about watching this episode amazed by the magnitude of it and he looks out the window when the moon is falling out of the sky and (laughs) yes good 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 contemporary reference there lizzie (laughs) um yeah moonfall in cinemas now um what do you think about this because it's a small scene but i find it kind of beautiful what do you think it is but it's also kind of what i mean by the bloat of this episode i don't think this episode needed this and i feel like an episode like episode eight could have done with this Yes, I wouldn't disagree with that. It's, it's that that shift. You know when you go from everything that's just happened in King's Landing, you barely caught your breath. Now we're going to fucking Old Town, to this new location with Sam and Gilly, who it's nice to check in with, but yeah, it's, just, it's such a kind of, I don't know, it, it gives you whiplash, that kind of tone shift. What I will say in my huge defence of this, which is that it's not, by any means, my fav- I think it probably is my least favourite bit of the episode, actually. Mm. But I think that even something as small as Sam arriving at the Citadel, it feels like it's it's treated like a major moment. And I think it's an example of how massive the episode is trying to be, where, like, you get the size and the scale of the library. Yeah, and yeah. The re- and the re- I don't know if you noticed, um, the sundials and the chandeliers in the Citadel, next time you watch the theme tune... And you notice oh, right, the, yeah, yeah. the sun, the, yeah. where the sun is. Uh, yeah, nice little visual little cue there that those are the little chandeliers from the, and the sundials from the opening of the uh, of every episode that we've had so far. But you get the lovely moment where the white ravens are heading out across the kingdoms, which is like, obviously, that eventually turns into the reveal that winter has come. Um, but all I can think about when the music strikes up and Sam is staring out at how incomprehensibly massive that library is, all I can think about, and I, d- I didn't expect you to think about this, Lizzie, because you've only seen the show once, but mm. all I can think of in this moment is all the way back to season one, um, where Sam says, I always wanted to be a wizard. Oh, yeah. And yeah. this is about the closest he's going to get to being a wizard. And it feels like a lovely character moment where he's like, I'm finally where I always belonged. Yeah, it feels like, I feel like, feels like home been. because yeah. we've seen Sam's home and it clearly wasn't home. So No, and as quiet and short as it is, um, I think it's just really graceful and quite funny with the, uh, yes, well, I suppose that 
life is irregular, really. That's uh, John Bradley <laughs> creeping into Sam's character, I think, there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I want to be brave. Why? I'm not. I don't want to die. You're not going to die. Get us some water. No, no water. Just Is there listen, a mister? Listen to me, Ned. Beyond the wall, Uncle Benjamin leaves Mira and Bran a few miles north of the wall, stating that he can take them no further, and he leaves, stating that the Great War is coming and that he still fights for the living. Now the Three-Eyed Raven, Bran enters the vision of Ned Stark at the Tower of Joy that we saw earlier in the season, and he witnesses Ned entering the tower to find his sister, Lyanna Stark, who is bleeding to death after giving birth. And as she dies, Lyanna begs Ned to promise her that he will protect the baby from Robert Baratheon who she says will kill him if he finds out. And as the, ba- uh, as the baby is handed to Ned, Bran realises, and then we get shown afterwards, that the baby is in fact Jon Snow. So, what, what do you make of the stuff that happens with Bran? I, w- I would say beyond the wall, but the majority of it actually takes place in Dawn in the vision. But yeah, yeah w- what do you make of it all? I mean, I feel bad because when we were watching this together, I didn't have a clue what was going on. And so you asked me, like, who do you think the father is? I was like, I don't fucking know. Uh, yeah. Robert. Well, I don't know why I thought it would be Robert, but it's just one of those, you know, like the before Game of Thrones times. It's like there's only a few names that come up. There's like Ned, Robert, Hodor, you know. it's The Mad King. and yeah, Exactly. So I think it's one of those things that, is more impactful on a rewatch maybe than on a first watch. And like, I didn't have the sort of theories of, you know, is like you showed me that YouTube video and yeah, that sort of thing never really came into my mind. I just took, you know, John is Ned's bastard son as a, a given because yeah, I guess I haven't been looking at the show that deeply, but it is really clever how they do it, and they do some, you know, in the Winterfell scenes later on, they do some, like, I'm sure there's one guy at the actual, um, at the ceremony yeah. who says, like, he is the son of Ned Starks, and, like, I'm surprised he didn't just look to the camera and do the big wink and, <laughs> and nudge, yeah. Oh, God. Um, this, uh, yeah, this is my favourite moment from Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I think that for me, it wasn't just a culmination of stuff in the show. Um, a lot of this was based on this R plus L equals J fan theory that a lot of people have kind of been waiting for. I think the first mm. first utterance of this R plus L equals J theory was first posted onto the internet in like 1996. Shit. Um, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Where someone had read the first or second book and had gone, hang on a minute, is... Lyanna Stark, Jon Snow's mother, and then like, and then if Lyanna Stark is Jon Snow's mother, who's his father? And so there was this theory like, oh, is it Rhaegar Targaryen? Because like they ran away together, or like you know what, like you know. And so that was where it started, and so that really gathers speed. And I was really unsure about what to do with this because if you tell somebody about the theory, it ruins it. Before you know, yeah. if you tell yeah. someone about the theory before this episode, it ruins it. But mm. if you don't tell them, 
you run the risk of like because it's one of those where like they reveal it in the way that this you kind of have to think about where the audience were in 2016 which is that everybody watching game of thrones knows what this theory is and so the show doesn't really it doesn't hold your hand with it it does it all through visuals and implication and mm. cuts and edits and stuff. And so, like, the fans who all knew what was coming, because as soon as you see a tower in Dawn, all the f- in episode three, the fans are like, oh, my God, they're going to do it. Oh, my God, they're going to do it. Oh, my God, this is where Jon Snow was born. Oh, my God, this is where Ned had his dream in the book. And, oh my-. and so, like, it's I think it's a moment for, A, book fans, and, B, show fans who had been paying quite close attention mm-hmm. to theories online and stuff. I don't know how it comes across for new viewers and i think you're a pretty good indication which is just that okay john snow is lyanna stark's son and that's it that's about as far as that scene gives you the information i think yeah i mean i want to say that this isn't a complaint i'm not saying oh they should have spelled it out to be a bit more because it's a tv show you don't have to do that and it's probably better if you don't i think it's good to be subtle about these things and yeah. then you ha- then you do get to have that moment it's like oh shit that's that's pretty big um but yeah um i i do think it's it's really well done and i i love the um you know the shot to john's gormless face yeah yeah <laughs> it's really well I done i remember um i remember somebody on a youtube comment um a little while ago, I remember reading, I was watching this scene and having a cry, which I'll explain why in a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, where someone was saying, when I was watching this scene, I wasn't sure who the baby was. And then he opened his eyes and I realised that he had the eyes of a world-weary boar. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> <What in> hell. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yep, yeah, that's John. But, um, okay, so... The reason I get very... First and foremost, the reason I get very emotional about this um, is because this this plot point is why Benioff and Weiss got the chance to make the show. Yeah, yeah, um, I remember you saying, yeah. It's a story that they've repeated many times, uh, but if anyone hasn't heard it, uh, when they got the chance to meet with George R. R. Martin and ask him if they could take the show, uh, at the end of this three-hour dinner that they had... He sort of said, yeah, okay, right, fine. Your vision for the show, um, I'm fine with it. Um, But let me ask you this. And he says, who is Jon Snow's mother? And it's because it's something that... This this reveal hasn't happened in the books, by the way. The show got to do this. And I imagine it it hurts George R. R. Martin inside that the show got to do this and he didn't because it was his idea and it's his baby. And it's something that he clearly cares about a lot. And because of the way because of the way that he's buried it throughout the books, if somebody can get it, it means that they're paying enough attention to understand. You know, it's like, okay, they've got a good vision, but do they understand it? Do they have they picked up on the little things? Have they read it closely? And they got it right. And so the reason that Game of Thrones exists is because Benioff and Weiss got this right. And then they get the, as much as it hurts George, it must be so emotionally rewarding for them to be able to put to screen the moment that they, you know, that they conceal it, that the, the moment that they got to the chance to do this and the fact that it changed their lives. And it's mm. this kind of stuff that makes Game of Thrones to me so rewarding on a rewatch. Um, this recontextualizes all of Ned Stark's behavior 
in season one, there are certain scenes where he's acting particularly frosty with Robert Baratheon when he's act- when he's on about killing every Targaryen that he can get his hands on. And Ned's like, my sister gave birth to a Targaryen. And yeah, like, yeah. And you can't get your hands on this one, can you? And like, it, and he, I think he understands that like the Targaryens, maybe they weren't the enemy after all. They were just another family. Mm. Um, and I think about how the way they've buried it throughout the show, sort of to the point where you forget and you you forget to think about who Jon Snow's mother is. I think it recontextualizes a lot of Jon's story up to this point. Um, Lyanna saying, promise me, when Ned's final words to Jon were, I promise, um, that sends chills up my spine. Um, I think that the cut, as you said, from baby Jon's face to adult Jon's face um, is perfectly timed with the music and the Stark theme. Yeah, yeah. And... Oh, um, and I think it was just the fact that we'd been waiting so long and that the delivery was so beautiful. And I think personally, what the show does with this information from then on is very interesting. And a lot of people, obviously because a lot of people weren't that happy with where the show goes from this point, they weren't happy about this particular aspect of it as well. But I'm curious to see how you feel about how the show deals with this information now that it's okay. out there. Uh, well, I think I'll be I'll be coming back. Um, I'll be coming back to that. Um, I think in maybe all of drama TV, this is uh, a moment that really seals Game of Thrones as like my favorite show, and this moment kind of seals this episode as my favorite as well. I think it's an emotional culmination that's been about six seasons in the making. And it's something that really rewards long-term emotional investment in a long story. Um, And the way they do it is very delicate and Mm -hmm. very emotional. And even in a moment where you think you're kind of happy that you've got the reveal, it's like Lyanna Stark kind of had to die for this. And like Lyanna Stark is going on with herself. Like, I I, I don't want to die. Like, just listen to me. Like, you know, these are my last words. Please pay attention. Um, and yeah, it's, it is rather a lot to take in and, um, that video on YouTube in particular ending with that, uh, which I will leave a link to in the show notes, ending with that quote from David Benioff saying like, this is why George let us take the show. Um, yeah. And it's also like, if you think back to season five, this is why a lot of people were just convinced that John wasn't dead. Cause we all kind of knew that this theory was coming. Mm. and we knew that they couldn't do this and like not deliver on it and stuff like that and so now there's this huge piece of earth shattering information out there and Bran Bran and Mira are the only two people who know who are alive and it's just also the fact that Ned Stark took the secret to the grave and didn't tell anyone and it makes you rethink about how just how not maybe stubborn but like how honourable Ned was where it's like he's already holding on to information that could have saved his life. And he just didn't because he knew that it was the best thing to do and the safest thing for his, well, I mean, it turned out not to be the case, but when he got beheaded, he thought that this was just the safest thing for his children. And, yeah. uh, and the fact that he took John and raised him as his own when it wasn't his son. And I think about Catelyn as well, like, 
the fact that he nearly ruined his marriage to Catelyn Stark to protect his sister. And yeah, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm gonna stop, but um, yeah, just because there's more emotional stuff to come, but like, um, yeah, I feel like if I don't stop now, then I won't stop at all. So, yeah, it's just it's amazing, I love it. And you, Lord Kerwin, your father was skinned alive by Ramsay Bolton, still, you refuse the call. But House Mormont remembers. The North remembers. We know no king, but the king in the North whose name is Stark. I don't care if he's a bastard. Ned Stark's blood runs through his veins. He's my king from this day until his last day. In Winterfell, Davos confronts Lady Melisandre about Shireen's death. Melisandre admits to the crime, but declares that she did it in service of the Lord of Light and that Stannis also sanctioned the killing. Jon banishes Melisandre to, uh, from the North and threatens to execute her if she ever returns. Later, Jon and Sansa privately discuss the Battle of the Bastards. Sansa apologises for not telling Jon about the Knights of the Vale, and Jon forgives her. Before he leaves their conversation, Sansa informs him that a white raven has come from the citadel, confirming that winter has come, and winter is here. In the Godswood, Littlefinger approaches Sansa and reveals that he has declared for House Stark, and he also tells her that his ultimate goal is to sit on the Iron Throne with her at his side. When he attempts to kiss her, however, she kind of nudges him away and leaves. And later on, Jon gathers the various Northern Lords to plan for the coming winter. During the arguments between the Wildlings and the Northern Houses, Lyanna Mormont stands up and chastises the Northern Lords who did not come to Jon's aid and declares him the new King in the North. And the other Northern Lords accept their punishment from Lyanna Stark and they accept the fact that Jon should be uh, King of the North and they give him a coronation while Littlefinger and Sansa share an un uh, sort of an uneasy glance with each other and John doesn't smile much either which we'll talk about as well um a lot of stuff happening at Winterfell this week as well a lot of, where mm -hmm. to be honest where doesn't stuff happen this week I feel like this is the episode where everything happens everywhere <laughs> well there was the citadel there was the yeah, citadel sure. yes but yeah what do you make at Winterfell um, yeah, really good stuff. I mean, I don't know where you want to start. I suppose we should start with um, the stuff with Melisandre. Right? Yeah, Davos and Melisandre, yeah. Yeah, I, th I thought it was an interesting little wrinkle that John, John had to kick her out, but he couldn't go as far as, you know, executing her because, well, I mean, he does kind of owe her his life. Yes. And so... I'm, I'm sure you're, you're, you were about to ask me, do we think Melisandre's going to show up again? And yes, I do, because she has that ability, and I'm sure she'll be a valuable asset in the wars to come. Okay. So you, you believed Melisandre's pitch then. You, you, you were happy when she was uh, pleading her case and saying, but I'm valuable, please don't execute me. You were like, yeah, you are valuable, and I hope they don't execute you. <laughs> That's it. It's like, you're right, but also John is still right to banish you, because... Yeah, you did execute a child for no real reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Davos confronting Melisandre, probably Liam Cunningham's best moment. Yeah, there's also a really lovely moment later on as well where he sort of looks at um, Lyanna Mormont and yeah. you can tell there's that little glint in his eye, like he sees um, Shireen in her. Yeah. Yeah, Davos really has a thing about like, 
like brave girls that are like warriors inside and like you know they they, they want to change the world and i think he sees a lot of hope in their eyes really yeah like daughter figures sort of thing yeah massively um but yeah, I think that, you know, it's been... It, this, again, it's another emotional culmination to a, a storyline that's been running for a very long time where Davos finally gets the chance to have a proper go at Melisandre about everything that she did wrong without yeah. Stannis sort of going, shut up, put him in a cell. Or like, you know, sending Davos back to Castle Black or something. It's like, there's no one in his way now. And it's been a long conflict between Davos and Melisandre that's been stretching back since the start of season two. And it's a very, very wonderful performance from Liam Cunningham. Um, it feels Absolutely, like yeah. the weight of four seasons, or even two, three, four, five, six, um, so five seasons really of worth of story, mm. um, the full weight of that is fully behind Liam Cunningham's performance in this in this scene. And it's so much so that like John, I think he makes a wise decision not to kill her. I agree with you that, you know, she might prove useful in the future and he can't rule her out completely. Yeah. But even John is moved by this, where, like, the woman who brought him back from being dead, which I'm not sure he's 100% positive about, uh, to be honest. Oh, no, no. Um, but-, but, you know, you know, she she tried to do a good thing for him, I suppose. But even he yeah. is convinced that, like, yeah this shit doesn't fly like Davos wouldn't lie about this so yeah I can't really execute you because I don't know if that's my place but we need to do something and so it's out the north you go it's like I feel like Davos is a better ally to have than Melisandre yeah I would agree less magical but more loyal probably (laughs) yeah and and probably like better strategizing as well I have to be honest the tears do flow a little bit when Sansa announces that winter is here um, again, this more evoking of Ned Stark and the very, very beginning of the story. Um, you know, we've been waiting a very long time for somebody to say those words that winter has come or that winter is here. Then the Stark theme plays, and it's like, oh God, haven't we been here for such a long time? And isn't this beautiful? <laughs> yeah. Again, I think it's more like a, a sort of fan thing, but yes, yeah, sure, I, I can see it. What do you make of that scene with Sansa and John on the ramparts? Um. Yeah, it was really sweet. It's it's kind of like a, it's a case of they're looking over and there is that sense of like, well, we've got Winterfell, but what now? You know, we've we've overcome one obstacle, but the next obstacle is much bigger, much more dangerous and much more of a threat to humanity as a whole. Yes. So um, you're really beginning to pick well, I mean you've been picking this up from the beginning, but now you're really beginning mm-hmm. to say the words that make me think, yeah, which is that the war never ends. No, it doesn't know. And there's always something coming over the hill. Yep. There's always someone coming to take what's yours. One shot I do really love is when Melisandre's walking out into the north and suddenly in that moment you are reminded that Winterfell is very far away from what's happened in the south. Mm, yeah. And it's just this distance and they have all of this to like this is what this is now John's domain. And it's not going to be like, it isn't all going to be plain sailing because obviously, you know, the hat that there is always more show. But even yeah. there's a little wrinkle in this, though, with the rampart scene, with the scene in the God's Wood, with the scene in the Great Hall at Winterfell. And it's just Littlefinger 
Littlefinger's in every scene, whether he's present or not. Because there's that moment where Sansa says, only a fool would trust Littlefinger. But she mm. she trusted him to deliver the Knights of the Vale. And like she's doing that thing yeah. again where she's saying yeah. things out loud, but then in her head, she's thinking something else. And it comes through in that throne room scene where like you get the big, like, the king of the north, the king of the north, the king of the north, which is like... And you get the big version, the variation of the Thrones theme. It's this big major key, like do 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 do, and it's like this big yeah, John's king in the north. And then Littlefinger just catches Sansa's eye, and she can't look away from him. And it's like yeah, yeah that's he's it. still just... there. He's still pecking away at her brain, and like even though he's... she pushes him yeah. away and doesn't kiss him, it's like he's still just controlling her in that way that's it he's like a spectre he's like death standing in the doorway clipping his nails just waiting for his moment because you know it will come yeah exactly there's you know the, oh, fuck. there's something there there's a little bit like because john even says we need to trust each other and he kisses her on the forehead but there's this little just this little scuff in their relationship that you feel like little fingers looking at because he says you know i've declared for house stark to all for all to hear and it's like who should they rally behind you know john who was a bastard or you and it just plants that idea in santa's head and it's like should i would i be better at this than john am i annoyed that they've overlooked me it was me that brought the knights of the veil like you know so it's yeah, just this, again, you get this big celebratory moment, this big victory with Leanna Mormont reading everybody the riot act, which is great fun, by the way. And I'm, I, oh, I, I, I knew you God, would love, I love that. Leanna Mormont. <laughs> I fucking love Leanna Mormont. <laughs> She's a little star. Um, yes. But it's just this uneasy kind of, like, the, the what I think of in this scene is when John was named Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and he was like, no, no, don't, no, don't. Don't name me Lord Commander. <laughs> and then when he gets named yeah. Lord Commander, there's this little grin that goes across his face and he pumps his fist ever so slightly just so that like we can see it but no one else can. Whereas mm. with this, he stands up and it's like he doesn't smile. He just sort of yeah. takes on the position because they've asked him and Santa looking over at Littlefinger at the same time and it's like this little... you know, And, and, and I think as well, like the last time... The King of the North was chanted at somebody was Rob Stark, and he yeah, it's a went death and he, he went he went south and died. Mm, and of course, so like the King of the North is not an amazing thing to have shouted at you because it means that a very oppressed realm in the Seven Kingdoms makes you like puts you think yeah you do it you get us independence this time. We, I mean we've not had it for hundreds of years, but go on, <laughs> your turn now and. It's just this this weird air that hangs over the whole scene where as emotional it is as it is coming immediately after um, the reveal that he's the son of Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen and you're thinking about all the implications that that has for the story. Um, obviously, the biggest one being that he's Daenerys' nephew. Yeah. And all of these thoughts are swirling around my head and then he gets crowned king in the north as well and it's like... Oh my god! <laughs> I yeah. can't really cope, and 
I think it's kind of funny that like, you know, with John, I think Jon Snow is the big, in a way, is the big winner of the season in the sense that like he started it dead and now he's back home and he's king on the surface. We'll have to see where it develops. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that where you, I think in that moment, John sort of, he's standing up and he thinks, well, who else is there? But like you say, um, Littlefinger's looking on and it's like, mm, there is somebody else and I can I can plant that seed in her head and make it think it's, make her think it's her own. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, that could, you know, come back to bite. But yeah, the, the King in the North thing, it's a real sort of, um, a, yeah, not something you'd want. It's like being told you're going to cover spirit in the sky. It's just, this can only end badly given historical <laughs> precedent. It carries through the theme from last week, I think, about this idea of how catharsis feels and then what kind of catharsis you want and then what it feels like when it's taken away. Yeah, just yeah. Just something undermining it ever so slightly. How about the fact that this is actually happening? You have your armies, you have your ships, you have your dragons. Everything you've ever wanted, since you were old enough to want anything. It's all yours for the taking. Are you afraid? Good. You're in the great game now. And the great game is terrifying. The only people who aren't afraid of failure are madmen like your father. In dawn, Lady Olena arrives at Sunspear to form an alliance with the Sand Snakes, and in addition, Elaria Sand reveals that she has also formed an alliance with Daenerys via Lord Varys, who welcomes Lady Olena into their little three-way partnership to take on Cersei. And then in Marine, Daenerys parts ways with Dario and orders the second sons to maintain peace in the city. Shortly afterwards, she names Tyrion as her Hand of the Queen and makes her final arrangements to leave the city behind. Several weeks later, with the Greyjoys, Tyrells and Martells all part of her army, along with the Dothraki, the Unsullied and her dragons. Cannot believe I'm finally saying these words. Daenerys Targaryen finally sails for Westeros. She's finally on her fucking way. <laughs> we Jesus did it. Jesus Christ. Which means that... At long last. I just... Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm going to go off and be in tears about that scene again in a second. But this is, again, another place where it's very easy for me to forgive the slight creaks in the Daenerys stuff. Because what I want to happen is for Daenerys to get out of Marine. And for Daenerys to get out of Marine, a few corners have to be cut, as we've been saying this season, where, like, corners have to be cut in order for things to... Things have to move now, and they have to be big, and the beats have to land. And in order for those big beats to land, the micro stuff maybe has to be sacrificed a little bit. And so this idea that Dario will just kind of do Daenerys' bidding, allow the people to elect some leaders, that a massive mercenary army will just say to the people, um, yeah, choose your own leaders, whatever, and that Marine is peaceful for forever and that Slaver's Bay never slides back or Dra the Bay of Dragons never slides back into a conflict or anything like that it's just something that you have to kind of put out your mind like it's just mm, Daenerys yeah. if, Dana if, if, if the conflict is never resolved in Marine, the story never goes anywhere and it's it is time for Daenerys to come over like it is way past time <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so Dawn first um how are we with Lady Olena around the Sand Snakes? 
Um, surprised to see the sand snakes back, but okay. It kind of, you know, it it, it was a means to an end. Mm-hmm. It, it does make sense that they're there in the um, the TTD Alliance. There might be a better name for it. <laughs> the but, TTD Alliance is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think the the Varys reveal was like, oh yes, it's fucking Varys. If anyone's gonna like lead this force, it's gonna be Varys. He, yeah. he you know, he's the one with all the secrets. Yeah, he's the one you want on your side. Hmm. Yeah, I think him popping up is sort of expected, but his like his reveal is still a massive rush of blood for me. Like, yeah, I love this. Yeah, the because you, you, I love how as well that he I think he's the only character that they could introduce other than maybe Tyrion. I think he's the only character that they could introduce as a shadow, and you have exactly no you have no doubt who it is because he's mm. the only character with a completely polished head. <laughs> 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 And I say this because, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm not exactly joking about it, but, like, I think, you know, he's the only character who's bald in the show, like, who's prominent. I mean, we've had Polyver and that guy who got killed by the Hound a couple of weeks ago, but he's the only character who you could reveal him as a silhouette and go, oh, that's amazing. And so when he steps out and he goes, fire and blood, it's, uh, yeah, it's a cool <laughs> reveal. And it's like, oh, shit, Cersei doesn't know what's coming for her. Um, yeah, yeah. I gotta say though, Lady Olena, even she can make Dawn pretty great. Um, even if they were just kind of using her to sort of slap the sand snakes about a little bit and sort of wink at the audience and go, okay, like, okay, guys, we kind of dropped the ball with that. But hey, Lady Olena's here to make fun of them. So have a laugh, why don't you? Um, but it's funny. Like the, no, good. Let the grown women speak. And then I love the way that Alaria, I love the editing. Like, I love the way um, Indira Varma, who um, plays Ilaria Sand, the way she rings that bell is so mm. suave. I've never seen yeah. anybody ring a bell that nicely. It's, um, yeah, really lovely <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Maureen, how, how are we feeling? Because this is it. Everything's tied up now. Um, so how are we? Um, I mean, that stuff you were saying before about how, you know, you have to wrap everything up very quickly and there is, it does leave questions. It's like, well, shit you've just kind of left this in a bit of a a sorry state but you've got to move things on it does it kind of worries me a bit for the ending like i'd know nothing about the ending mm-hmm. uh, genuinely for for listeners i i know absolutely nothing not one thing and there is that part of me where you worry that like they're going to leave more questions unanswered than answered and there is that sense of well, if they if they've been in Marine for what like two two and a half seasons, and yeah. this is how they leave it with you know a fairly quiet scene between Daenerys and what's his face, and that's it. Then, yeah, I, I it was inevitable that you were going to have to get Daenerys over to Westeros at some point, but it feels inconclusive somehow. It feels like there's a missing how? step. It feels like there's a missing step somewhere. Mm. Like it's, I'm, I'm sh- I, I know they did the sort of thing where Daenerys admits she has to leave, but there's also only an episode ago it felt like we were at war again. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be a hint of that when she actually goes to leave. Yeah, it's. I think it's supposed to be a few weeks later and it's, this is what I mean about the kind of the corner cutting where it's like all of the slavers Mm. have been defeated and no one's going to rise up against Daenerys for the foreseeable future. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, like the story's done the work for that. I think, like, you know, you can plausibly think, yeah, okay, why would I want to challenge anyone with three dragons? But then, like, what happens when the dragons leave? Exactly. Yeah. It's just going to fall back into the same pattern, isn't it? Well, this is something I think about with Daenerys, which is that, you know, we had the moment where, like, she took Astapor and it all kind of slid back into its usual habits. And then she took yeah. Young Kai and that kind of slipped back into its usual mm-hmm. habits. She had to send a yeah. whole envoy out with his Darzo Lorak and Dario to tell them off. <laughs> and I don't understand why she thinks that this wouldn't just happen in Marine. It's obviously that, like, you know, the slavers are, you know, they're, they're sort of gone. But not everyone... We saw in season four and five that, like not even all of the common people are happy with, like, Daenerys. But again, I think this may be a criticism of Daenerys, which is, like, she calls it the Bay of Dragons and then just fucks off out of there. It's like, I'm going to name this place after myself, and anyway, I have a I have a throne to go and get, so see ya. And in the end, that kind of... What hangs over Daenerys's scenes in this episode is the fact that for all of the good work and amazing stuff that she's done in Marine, mm. it has... And in Slaver's Bay in general it has all been in service of eventually going. It's all been yeah. in service of yeah. what she wants to do on the other side of the narrow sea. What if it does go to shit in Marine? And I'm sort of like, eh, you know, Daenerys doesn't care anymore. And I think the audience are tired. So, you know, it's like, okay, fine. <laughs> like, I think this is a little bit with the episode where it kind of creaks a little bit. But it's something where it's like, eh, you know, they've probably done enough. So I'm like, yeah, fine. It's it, This is actually my least favourite bit of the episode. The stuff in Marine with Daenerys and Dario. It's the one bit of the episode where I'm sort of like, could you move it on? And then she gets to speak to Tyrion and that's lovely. But yeah, it's... Oh yeah, yeah. I love that scene, yeah. But I think the the stuff with Dario is kind of... I I guess I sort of appreciate that... Like, you know, like in real life, there are those moments where you just accept that you need to move on from something that yeah. does not, there's not a particular reason. There's no venom or anything. It's just the time has come. And, you know, if you, if you want to move on to bigger and better things, you do have to leave some things behind. Yeah. And in this case, it's Dario. And also just the anti-slave anti-slavery project that she uh, set up and did very very well with I mean she tried yeah she did and she did a very good job um, and I, I suppose the, the threat kind of hangs over that you know Daenerys is like if I get to Westeros and I hear that you slid back into Slaver's Bay and you've slid <laughs> and you, you're you know you've got slavery again or you, uh, you, you'd be in trouble because that's the kind of thing where it's like um, Tyrion last week where he says if any of your mates have any designs to take over Slaver's Bay again, just tell them what happened. Like, and the fact that you live by Daenerys's grace. And so it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> flimsy, but like, it's a warning, I guess. So you could sort of, you could plausibly think like, okay, fine, whatever. After Daenerys breaks up with, uh, with Dario and leaves him heartbroken. Goodbye, Dario. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she comes to sit with Tyrion. And she names him Hand of the Queen. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, really lovely. Uh, there is um, another slight worry that it is going to turn into a Tyrion loves Daenerys type thing. I really hope they don't do that. Hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I, I found it very sweet. I think like Tyrion, we know, is someone who has been underappreciated all his life. And it feels like the first moment where someone has genuinely sort of accepted what, you know, who he is and what he has to offer and seems genuinely like happy to have him in their company and yeah. like a valuable asset like he is. Yes. So, yeah. Um, other than that, that slight maybe worry about it's going to turn into another Jorah thing. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I can understand why that would hang over that scene a little bit. Mm. Um, yeah, I find it so sweet. Um, just the, I had something made for you, or I'm not, not totally sure if it's right, and the moment where like Tyrion sort of realises what's happened, and this this thing as well where Tyrion is kind of, He's still a cynic, but oh yeah, yeah. when he says, you know, I, I don't really believe in things because I see where belief gets people, but maybe, you know, I'll, I'll take a chance on you and don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing in this moment, but it feels sweet, I think. I mean, cynics still have a heart. I they think do. Ultimately, a lot of cynics just want to be loved and you get the sense that Tyrion has never really had that. Not properly. Not not no. outside of Jamie. No. No, no. Um, and then it all comes to a close in this epic, powerful sailing scene. Um, mm-hmm. Just that I don't know how you feel about this, but like I think that like everything that we I think I think I know why they finished the episode with this, and it's that it provides a very sobering full stop. That all of the squabbling and all of the well terrorism that we saw and all of the massive lineage reveals that we saw in this episode and all of that doesn't mean squat when dragons get involved and it's like who can stop her like i I think that's the shot i get the fact the feeling i get from that final shot is who can stop daenerys like how how can daenerys be stopped like she has she has two separate kingdoms back in her. You've got the Reach and Dawn, mm. plus the Unsullied and the Dothraki, plus the dragons. And when you think about what's on the board, speaking like Benioff and Weiss again, um, there isn't much for Cersei to play with. She has her army and the capital. Mm-hmm. And because she's the queen, she could call people to her side. Yeah. And you have John, who has the whole of the North and the Knights of the Vale, and I think that's why the show ends the way the episode ends the way that it does with these three separate strands of the story. Um, and there was a very bizarre ahead of season seven. There was this very bizarre promo thing they did where they had Kit, Amelia, and Lena all walking to three separate chairs. While um, right. while a very slow version of "Sit Down" by James played, oh, it was a God. it was like a it was a very weird thing that HBO did. But like, I think this achieves the same effect, but million times better. Which is that you've seen John get crowned king of the North, you've seen Cersei get crowned queen of the Seven Kingdoms, and you think everything's settled, and you think, right, yeah. Well done, guys. You've wiped the slate clean there. You've fully and thoroughly closed the curtain on Act 2 of the story. 
well done. Very decisive. Amazing episode. And then Drogon flies overhead and the, the choir strikes up with the... Oh, when when Drogon dips his wings in the water and a bolt goes through oh, my sister. Oh, sit down. Oh, sit down. <laughs> um, and that same bolt goes through my system again that kind of rises up out my eyes and makes me cry because I'm like, fucking hell, this TV show is really powerful. And that even something as simple as a few ships kind of just going through the water can feel like this most epic, like, massive thing. Um, and, yeah, it's just that whatever was organised and whatever whatever scores were settled in Westeros this week, Daenerys is coming to fuck shit up again and I love it. I, I just, I love it. It's this very sobering moment where it's like the most powerful player in the Game of Thrones hasn't even entered it yet and it just made, I, I remember when the screen cut to black and I was like, and you know how normally there's about a year wait between seasons yeah. Um, where they normally start in April, finish in June. Um, this mm. started in April and finished in June. Season seven aired in August of the next year, so it was fourteen months. Uh, and it was like it was the it's the long it was the longest wait between seasons. And I was like, That's, I well, was so excited for a very long time. <laughs> well, now you know how I feel with Succession. So yes, yeah, that was a yeah. very long wait. But yeah, I think I want to. Prov- I I do agree that it's a great theme, but. I think a counterpoint to that is that as much as you mentioned that she has all of these forces on her side, I also think that that kind of, those kind of forces are only ever as good as their leader. You think cool. of great football teams that have had shit managers, for example. It's like yes. we've we've already seen evidence in this episode that she's failed in at least one location. So... There is that question that comes to mind. Well, it's like, if you couldn't tame Marine, what chance do you have at Westeros? Cool. That's a, yeah, that is a very interesting question to leave yeah. the season on, I think. And I do think it hangs in the air. This question of, like, A, who can stop her? And then B, is it Daenerys herself? And yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know whether to mention that, to be honest, because I didn't know how you'd read the scene. Um but now I know that you've read the scene that way it's kind of like yeah so is it you know is it going to be like Daenerys's forces that stop her is it going to be Daenerys's advisors that stop her like you know can any can Cersei stand up to her can Jon like can anybody and yeah it's this the the, the shot when it pulls out and you just see all those ships and it's like oh my god (laughs) how can how can anybody compete with this (laughs) And all the while we're asking, what happened to Euron? Yeah, he well, he he, <laughs> uh, he, he comes back. Oh um, yeah, okay. He, he, he's building a thousand ships, Lizzie. He's busy. Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> all right then. Um, I want your line of the episode, Lizzie. Uh, I'll keep it short. Um, one from Sansa. She says, "John, a raven came from the Citadel." A white raven. Winter is here. Yeah, cool. Another kind of metatextual moment, I think, in the show where it's like, yeah, we said it. Yeah. You know. yeah. Um, your loser this week. Uh, one for the road. The High Sparrow. Yes. Um, not only does he get blown to smithereens, but it's kind of his own fault. Uh, exactly. Jonathan yeah. Price was fucking amazing as him. The High Sparrow was a really interesting character. But yeah, agreed. The dragons are here now, and I don't think the High Sparrow can convert them into the faith. 
So no, best to move on. Um, so, of course. And who's your big winner this week? I mean, shit. There's a few candidates, but dare I say, Cersei? Uh, well, I mean, I enjoy what she does in this episode. I think it's one of those moments where it's like, you have gone so far past evil in this moment that, like, you, yeah. you, you kind of just sort of have to sit there and go, I don't understand you, but, like, there's something going on in your brain that means, like, I can't challenge you because you will kill me. So here, yeah. have a round yeah. of applause and a lot of laughter. And, yeah, I think Cersei gets to the heart of this episode, which is that, Game of Thrones is kind of... I wouldn't say that it's done with subtlety, but you know what I mean? Like, it's if it's going to go for that overblown, maximum, maximalist moment, uh, it's going to take it. Like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just uh, going to go for it. I feel like this is the point where she becomes a sort of anti-hero. She's definitely not a hero. She's not a good figure like, I don't know, Sam or even John. But, you know, it's that kind of... Yeah, your morals are slightly questionable, but you're kind of a badass as well. So we'll give you that. I don't, I don't quite know how they manage it, but she becomes a sympathetic supervillain in this episode. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's mad, isn't it? It's this lesson where it's sort of like if you raise somebody in a violent and abusive system, then they will perpetuate the violence and abuse that raised them. And yeah, that's the lesson that I get from Cersei's actions in this episode, and the same with Arya's too. But mainly Cersei's, yeah. yeah. She's um, Stone Cold Cersei Lannister. <laughs> oh, that's a great tagline for the episode. Well done, Lizzie. <laughs> um, all right, then. Yeah, just to let you know that on Monday, um, we're going to publish our uh, interview with uh, Kieran Belshaw, who was the concept artist for HBO and Game of Thrones, amongst other things, um, during uh, seasons five to eight of the show. Um, and then next week, we'll come back with our season six review where we go over, you know, all of the episodes, we rank the episodes, we have a little chat about our favourite and least favourite characters of the season, that sort of thing. And then it will be full steam ahead for Season 7, Episode 1, entitled Dragonstone. And we look forward to seeing you. We really look forward to seeing you for that. Yeah. See you later, everyone. See ya. See ya.